an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the Aberdeen Museum of History burned down in 2018, and the community is struggling to rebuild. And the city's in financial trouble, so it's just like one more thing that he just couldn't handle all at the same time. And then, from the archives, William H. Seward was the father of Alaska and the uncle of Washington State. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. And now, Felix Bunnell all over the map. Short stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, the old Columbia River ferry crossing at Orondo in Douglas County. Orondo, eh? Yeah, you know, crossing the Columbia River nowadays, for the most part, requires just driving over a bridge, whether it's Astoria or Longview or Vancouver or Vantage or other places along the river. But even after some of those big bridges were built, there were a number of small private ferry crossings along the river as late as the 1950s and 1960s. In the heyday, back in the early 20th century, there might have been 50 or more crossings like this, and mostly privately run. Now, the one I want to look at today is called the Old Orondo Ferry. Orondo's upriver from Wenatchee and downriver from Chelan Falls. And there are a succession of different ferries there in operation from the 1890s until New Year's Eve 1959. Now, these aren't the huge double-enders you take to Bremerton or Whidbey Island. These were little barges, maybe fit two, three, four, maybe five cars. Often they were connected to cables that ran across the river so the little boat wouldn't have to fight the current. Now, construction of the Rocky Reach Dam around 1961 eventually inundated the old Orondo Ferry Landing. And other highway improvements and bridges made small private ferries like this just impractical. If you look on Google Maps, though, you can still see the road that leads from the main highway down toward the river. It's called the Old Ferry Road, right there in uh, hmm. whatever constitutes downtown Orondo. Now, I've, I've driven through there a few times. I don't think I ever stopped, so I got in touch with Ray Norwood. He's sales manager for Oval Fruit. That company's been in Orondo since 1928. It was founded by Grady Oval and his brothers. And Ray Norwood actually worked with Grady before Grady passed away at age 93 back in the late 90s. When I was talking with uh, Ray, he said there's a picture of the Old Orondo Ferry right there on the wall of the office. Now, Oval Fruit might be better known by the brand name it uses for its apples, Gee Whiz. Have you ever seen the label on an apple box that says Gee Whiz, Dave, that one? Uh, ring a bell? It does ring a bell, yes. Yeah. And Oval is known for its Granny Smiths, but they also grow Royal Gala and Honey Crisps. They mm-hmm. grow cherries, too, so they're packing fruit year-round there at, in Orondo. And the Gee Whiz brand name was actually the idea of founder Grady Oval. This is Ray Norwood. I think it dates almost all the way back. Um, Grady had a friend who commented on uh, some of his fruit when he shared it with him. Gee whiz, that tastes great. And that's where he grabbed the name. (laughs) We have some photos of the original paper label. They used to glue them on the edge of the wood boxes. It's a catchy name, and it's hung on for all these years. Yeah, it is pretty catchy. Now, there was also a ferry crossing a few miles upriver at Entiat. That one went away sometime after 1965. I found a newspaper clipping from June 1907 about the Entiat ferry loaded with sheep and breaking loose. It went several miles downriver till the steamboat Chelan intervened and towed it back. And they had problems like that a lot at Entiat. A year later, the ferry broke loose and floated a full 12 miles downstream before Thanks. it ran aground on the bank at Keeler's Landing. Other ferries around, like the one in Kalama, closed in 1934. In the Dalles, it closed in 1953. 
There are still boats in operation at Keflamet in Chelium up on the uh, Colville Reservation, and we have some great pictures of the old Arondo Ferry in my northwest. But just a little look back at the way transportation used to be, uh, used to rely on these little barges not so long ago. Yeah, it was a paddle wheeler, I see. Yeah, there's paddle wheels, and some were just, uh, you know, an unpowered boat on a cable that they would haul across with either physical labor or a, a small gas-powered engine or something like that. All manner of craft were used to get it back, get back and forth across the river. So it was apparently, just no, no snack bar. Yeah, and no way, no way to get bad coffee or popcorn. <laughs> Felix Spinella, resident historian. All his features are on mynorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Serving Greater Seattle. Hey, it's Tony Gonzalez with the latest rock news. An unexplained fire destroyed the Aberdeen Museum of History over the weekend. Within the museum was an entire section dedicated to Aberdeen native Kurt Cobain and the iconic career of Nirvana. Flames 15 to 20 feet high consumed the building as black smoke filled the interior, destroying the artwork and historic memorabilia inside. It has been more than three years since that fire destroyed the Aberdeen Armory and the History Museum inside. And now some Aberdonians are getting frustrated by delays in replacing it. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell is going to try to sort things out. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, this is a complicated story, a lot of misunderstandings and hurt feelings, along with some small-town politics. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about the museum that was lost in the June 9, 2018 fire. The 1922 Aberdeen Armory building was owned by the city, and the museum was run by a mostly volunteer group that founded it back in the late 1970s. Along with the Kurt Cobain stuff, there was all kinds of artifacts and photos, old fire engines and stained glass windows. The setting itself in the old gymnasium of the building had nice high ceilings. Much was destroyed, but a lot was salvaged, too, thanks to a massive recovery effort in the wake of the fire. Nancy Kyle is treasurer of the Friends of the Aberdeen History Museum. Her mom was one of the founders. They're part of the social fabric of the community. She says the museum was more than just a room full of stuff. It was just a little bit of everything, and it was it was just a remarkable building. And many people, after it burned and they saw the pictures of it, said, oh, my, we we didn't make it the museum. We always meant, but now we see what we missed. Now, I mentioned the misunderstandings. A lot of those have accumulated in the past three years, and I'd say it's only partly because of the pandemic. One issue has been a lack of a suitable replacement building. The old armory was so badly damaged it had to be demolished. Nancy Kyle of the Friends told me the Aberdeen City Council and Mayor Pete Shave have tried to help, but there's been friction. I believe that the intent of most of the city council members, they're not against a museum. They just didn't know that the city had a moral obligation to provide for that. They just thought it would come from somebody else. And many of them thought that somebody else was the Friends of the Avenue Museum. Um, and so I think that's one thing. The mayor has tried to help us in several ways, but the last statement that he made to a group was that the museum was not a priority for him right now. And everybody jumped on that. And so that became a very negative and divisive thing. So you heard her say that she believes the city is morally obligated to rebuild the museum. I think moral obligations can be hard to enforce. Um, and when Mayor Pete Shave said in July that the, the museum wasn't a priority, well, Nancy thinks he was misunderstood. But I'm not sure that he meant at all that he was not interested in a museum. It's just that right now they have the levee, they have the gateway, the fire department wants a new fire station, the police department wants a new police station, 
um, and the city's in financial trouble. So it's just like one more thing that he just couldn't handle all at the same time. So, I mean, the History Museum is an emotional topic for many people mm -hmm. in Aberdeen, and there are a lot of other things going on that the insurance money from the fire is helping support. Um, the city of Aberdeen got $23 million about a year ago for loss of the armory and its contents. That included the museum and two other organizations, uh, a senior center and a social service nonprofit called Coastal Community Action Program. Now, Nancy mentioned some of the big projects the city has on its plate, uh, building a flood control levy, building a tourism and economic development project called the Gateway Center. The city has so far spent about $14 million of the fire insurance money on those two projects. Now, exactly how much of the $23 million is left over for possible use for a new museum is not really quite clear. This is Aberdeen Mayor Pete Shave. So there was total of about $3.5 million, $4 million right in there, $3.5 million that went to the museum fund. And then it, it paid expenses, and uh, I think uh, at this point they have about a million dollars left. Yeah, and the expenses are um, a storage facility where the artifacts are currently stored that the friends don't have access to. And, and what the mayor says differs from what Nancy Kyle says she was told. The city was also running in the red a little bit, uh, and I believe they took another chunk of money to make this year's budget whole. In the end, out of the 23 million, the city treasurer has told us there are there's something less than four million left that's uncommitted. So there is some money left, but how much isn't clear? And what is left isn't necessarily earmarked or restricted to use for the museum. Now, along with the mayor and the city council and the friends of the Aberdeen Museum, there's one more party involved, a museum board appointed by the mayor. Now, the board wants to take advantage of the fire as an opportunity to bring the museum up a few notches. This would be with more staff and with professional accreditation from the American Alliance of Museums. They don't want to displace Nancy, Kyle, and the other friends, but they do want something different than what the city had before the fire, something professional and sustainable. Now, this group is not without its own friction with Mayor Shave. For instance, in my conversation with the mayor, he expressed disappointment that the city museum board had not done any fundraising, specifically taking advantage of federal COVID relief dollars. That's a frustrating thing with the city-appointed museum board. They have not, not done anything to reach out for any of those dollars. And I, I told them that before, and uh, they've never done that. So it's just frustrating. Now, John Shaw is chair of that city-appointed museum board. For his day job, he's executive director of the Westport South Beach Historical Society. That's the Maritime Museum at the mouth of Grace Harbor in Westport. I shared with John Shaw what the mayor said about the city museum board not raising money. Oh, my God. Did you get him on record of that? Because he, he expressly disallowed us from doing any of those things. That's just absolute baloney. You know, the idea that the museum board should have been going out for outside grant funds related to anything. We have, we have asked on a number of fronts to be able to go after things. And, but, and been precluded from doing anything that is any sort of grant request or outside activity. Yeah, so there's a lot oh, going on in Aberdeen. Real. Yeah, and every, every to a person, I had long conversations with each of these people. Everybody is passionate and wants this museum to come back. Um, there just seems to be lacking some ability for it all to be pulled together. The public meeting tomorrow night, um, there is a public meeting at 6 o'clock Thursday at the Aberdeen Theater. The Friends have organized it. Um, Nancy Kyle told me they want to uh, reach the public of what the, with the message of what they're trying to do.
and kind of what they believe the various parties' obligations are and to get community feedback. So it's not exactly a reset or a reboot, but there still is great potential. But the, the thing is that the money seems to be kind of gradually draining away with these other projects, which everyone agrees are priorities. But balancing it all out, getting private money, and finding a place for this museum and, a, and professional staff to do what everybody thinks needs to be done, boy, that's, that's going to be tricky. But if, you know, I'm pulling for these guys. Let's hope they can pull it off because it's, it's, it was a wonderful museum. I never visited there, but we will have some photographs at my Northwest. And, you know, I love history museums. So let's yes, hope things do. turn out for the best in Aberdeen. For this is Cairo where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, an old statue honors the deep ties between Alaska and Washington. Way up north, north to Alaska. Way up north, north to Alaska. North to Alaska. Go north for us is on. Historical pop songs must mean that Felix Spinell has entered the building. How far back are we going this morning? I think we're going to about 1867, by my estimation. So, you know, Amazon's announcement of their search for HQ2 and all the cities now jockeying for it got me thinking about a time not too long ago when Seattle was HQ1 for Alaska. I started wondering about how that happened. And, you know, Bill Spidell, the underground Seattle fame, you know, uh, late author of uh, Sons of the Prophets at Irreverent History, he said that Seattle for a while was the only city in the U.S. with its own private territory. (laughs) You know, our economy is so diversified now, it's easy to forget that Alaska was once a source of a much greater proportion of economic activity here. You know, back in the 19th century, fur and fisheries, the Klondike gold rush, you know, steamship business, building the Alaska pipeline. Now it's, you know, cruise ships and, and air travel, of course. Even the Chamber of Commerce in a recent report said that it's still responsible for about 113,000 jobs and $6.2 billion in activity. So, but none of this ever would have happened without Secretary of State William Seward. Explains why there's a big statue of him at Volunteer Park. There's a school a few blocks from here named right. after him. And, of course, a big park on Lake Washington. He's all over the place. You trip over Seward anytime you turn around here in That's Seattle. That's true. So to understand that connection, you have to go back to the 1860s. The Civil War was over. The federal government had time to look into other, other opportunities and other issues. In January of 1866, our territorial legislature petitioned President Andrew Johnson for help getting better fishing rights in, in Russian America, which is what Alaska was called in those days. So William Seward, the Secretary of State, started negotiating with Russia, but he wanted more than fishing rights. He wanted the whole enchilada or the whole piroshki. Why? I like well, say. I mean, it was called Seward's folly because nobody could figure out what, what you'd do with it. Well, Seward had big big plans for all of North America, and he became on, intent on buying uh, buying Russian America from the Russians. He's a fascinating guy. You know, he was the one he was attacked the same night Lincoln was assassinated. Right. He was stabbed multiple times. He gets credit for keeping uh, Great Britain and France out of the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. He accomplished a lot, anyway. So I learned all this from Walter Starr. He's an author, a biographer of Seward. He wrote a book a few years ago. I asked him why the Russians were even willing to consider selling us the land. Starr says they'd seen how the U.S. had expanded across the West, in particular how the annexation of Texas had gone down. Russia was well aware that fishermen were already coming up from Washington territory and fishing in Russian waters. They didn't like it, but it was a million miles away. There wasn't much they could do about it. Um, and so they feared a similar process of gradual Americanization and annexation, and they thought, you know, it's better to get something for it than to just see it seized by these 
upstart Americans. And that is what happened with Texas. Americans just started moving into Mexican territory. Yeah, and declared they were an be- own republic for a while. Then it was annexed, right. yeah, in 1845, yeah. I think. Anyway, Seward's Russian counterpart was a diplomat named Eduardo Stockel. They began talking about Alaska in March of 67. As legend has it, negotiations moved very quickly late one night when Stockel got word from Russia he could go ahead and sell. They bumped into each other at a men's club, and, and Stockel said, let's meet tomorrow and make a deal. Walter Starr said Seward didn't want to wait. Seward, with a smile, pushed back from the table and said, let us do the treaty tonight. And Stockel said something like, well, it's 10 in the evening, your office is closed. And Seward said, never mind, if you show up at midnight at the State Department, you will find me and the clerks. We will do it tonight. And they did. They basically started work. I mean, there were a few little points to clear up. Um, they started work at midnight and signed the thing at about five in the morning. Yeah, so if you'd seen that statue, it says at the base, let us make the treaty tonight. And that apparently is what he said. That comes from his son's biography a few decades later, so it's not positive. But for $7.2 million, that's two cents an acre, we got all of Alaska. It was official by October of that year. But according to Walter Starr, that wasn't all that Seward had his eye on. Seward thought that he might be able to persuade the British to part with British Columbia. But just in terms of your part of the world, he saw... No border just north of Seattle. He saw just American territory running up the entire coast between Seattle and Alaska. Oh, <laughs> we'd have been bigger than Texas. <laughs> yeah, and there was some dissatisfaction there in B.C., but, of course, Canada confederated later that year and convinced them to join Canada. So uh, Seward did visit here in 1869. The town was so small, Seward later said he thought he shook hands with every single resident of Seattle on his visit. And we didn't become HQ1 of Alaska automatically. There's a much deeper story about sort of uh, machinations we took in the 1890s. But we beat out San Francisco. We especially beat out Tacoma and became HQ1 for Alaska. How about that? Is there a, there is a Seward statue, right? Yeah, it was for the AYP. It was uh, unveiled 108 years ago this week over on the UW campus. It was moved up to Volunteer Park. It was supposed to be moved down to Seward Park eventually, uh-huh. but for some reason that didn't happen. So, so it's, it's in there. Volunteer Park. It's in Volunteer Park. Park. It's huge right there by the conservatory. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle.